1: The New Statesman. You're listening to audio long reads from The New Statesman, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, from the archive Trotsky in Mexico, Angela Carter on the Maternity Ward, read by Adrian Bradley and Melissa Deans. The former was written by Kingsley Martin and first published in The New Statesman magazine. On the 10th of April 1937. The latter was published in December 1983. In a second archive edition of the audio long read, we bring you two classic magazine pieces. In the first, the then editor of The New Statesman, Kingsley Martin, visits Leon Trotsky in Mexico in 1937, where he was staying with the artists Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, here referred to only as Rivera's wife, though she was also Trotsky's lover, or about to be. Martin asked the exile about the show trials then being held in Moscow, in which Stalin extracted confessions and convictions from Trotskyists. Why, he wanted to know, had his supporters not been bolder and stood their ground. In the second article, the novelist Angela Carter writes about her experiences on a London maternity ward shortly after becoming a mother at the age of 42. As in her fiction, she captures the strange mix of emotions and characters, the insulting doctor, the bossy nurse, the bliss of breastfeeding her son, who is doomed to love us because we are his parents, she writes. The same goes for us. That is life. That's the hell of it.
2: Kingsley Martin. Trotsky in Mexico. I went to see Trotsky in the house that Diego Riviera and his wife have lent him in an outlying suburb of Mexico City. He's very well guarded cannot go out, I am told, without a bodyguard of detectives and armed patrols on motorcycles. Four armed guards were standing at the gate. Once inside, I thought an exile could scarcely hope to find a lovelier refuge. Trotsky was sitting in a long, cool room, looking out onto the patio. A gay and beautiful courtyard, the walls bright blue, and the bougainvillea a blazing glory in the sunshine. He was working, he told me, on his new book, The Crimes of Stalin. Pictures of Trotsky, a raptor, suggest the stage revolutionary in the fuzzy hair and a certain untidy vehemence about the neck. Nothing could be further from the fact. Dapper was the word that came into my head when I first saw him. He looked as if he had just come out of a hot bath, just had his hair cut, his beard trimmed and his suit pressed. His hair and beard are grey and his face is a fresh pink. He looked like a Frenchman. Not, I decided after a few minutes, a French politician – but, in spite of his neatness, a French artist. As we talked, I retained the impression of Trotsky as an artist, an intuitive and imaginative man, vain and very able, a man of fierce will and unruly temperament. If I had met him without knowing who he was or what he had done, and without having read his books, I should have been impressed, but I doubt if I should have recognised his genius. Trotsky was charming and friendly, Yes, he was pleased to talk to me because he regarded the new statesman and nation as one of the few honest and genuinely radical papers. I suppose that he had read a recent article expressing scepticism about the evidence of the Moscow trials. I told him that I was still puzzled by the confessions. They were difficult to explain on any hypothesis. What possible pressure could be brought on all these experienced revolutionaries that would make them not only confess but stand by their confessions – and they had the opportunity of publicly repudiating them in open trial. Trotsky explained that I did not understand the methods of the GPU, the Russian intelligence service. He described how it first got hold of a woman and questioned her until she made a confession that incriminated her husband, how this was used to break down her husband's resistance, and how he in turn was induced to incriminate his friends, all of whom were gradually persuaded by pressure of one sort or another to sign what was required. The GPU knew, he said, how to attack each of his victims in his weakest spot, this man signing from sheer nervous exhaustion, that one because of a threat to his wife and children, the other in hope of pardon and release. The preparation of such a case took years, and the trials were the climax of a determination that Stalin had taken in 1927, when the split of the party occurred, completely to eliminate all those who had sympathised with Trotsky, and who might in the future swing opinion against Stalin's policy, the GPU would not stage trial until they were sure of all their men. I still did not understand why none of the prisoners had repudiated his confession in court. I tried to think of myself under such circumstances. I can see myself breaking down and confessing to anything under pressure, but the trial was free and open, and I think I should have withdrawn an extorted confession when I saw the press correspondence hanging on my words. Russians tell me that this is an English view, that confession is a spontaneous impulse of the Slavs' soul, an old Russian custom, not a peculiar invention of Dostoyevsky and the GPU. However, I put it to Trotsky. It was strange that not one of them should have gone down fighting and have appealed to the public opinion of the world. Most of them knew they were going to die anyway. Trotsky grew very animated. I was wrong, even after the example of a first trial, these men did not know they were going to die. There was a world of difference between certainty of death and just that much hope of reprieve. Here, Trotsky made an expressive gesture with his fingers to indicate even a millimetre of hope. Moreover, in Russia, the foreign correspondents were all paid prostitutes of Moscow. He seemed to believe that anyone who had a word to say for Stalin, or who hesitates to denounce the whole trial as a frame-up, must be in the pay of Moscow. He made an exception in the case of the Webbs. They were merely poor, credulous dupes. Afterwards, turning over this conversation in my mind, I did not find that it had cleared away my perplexity about the Moscow trials. When I wrote that I did not know whether or not to believe in the confessions, I meant exactly what I said. It seemed to me the only honest thing to say. Trotsky, like other people, interpreted my scepticism as a vote against Stalin and he had tried to remove any lingering doubts, yet I came away from our talk rather less inclined to doubt the possibility of Trotsky's complicity than I had been before, because his judgment appeared to me so unstable, therefore the possibility of his embarking on a crazy plot more credible. In any case, I shall not let myself become a partisan in this controversy until I have seen what evidence is produced before the inquiry that is now opening in New York, and until I have read the facts and arguments that Trotsky is compiling in The Crimes of Stalin. But I fear this open-minded attitude will have no effect on Trotsky, except to convince him that I, too, am a prostitute in the pay of Moscow.
1: After the break, Angela Carter on the maternity ward. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesmancom offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: Towards the end of the 38th week, I grow bored with saying fine when asked at the antenatal clinic how I'm doing. So I try a little joke. It backfires. God, how it backfires. How do you feel? A bit apprehensive, I say. Not so much about the birth itself as about the next 20 or 30 years. The consultant, an unreconstructed Thatcher clone, that is, she looks like Thatcher minus the peroxide and the schlap. "'turns on me a face costive with high moral seriousness. "'You have done the right thing in not having an abortion,' she says. "'But there is still time. "'If you have any doubts at all, "'I urge you to seriously discuss adoption with your husband. "'I know he's only a common-law husband, of course. "'I'm overwhelmed by incredulity. "'Had I ever mentioned abortion in connection with this incipient cherub? "'Are my compañero and I not the Darby and Joan of our circle?' Should I say we just got hitched? What business is it of hers anyway? I lapse into outraged silence. Later I will weep with fury. But if I do so now, who can tell how she will misinterpret that? I seethe. Who does she think she is? Or I am. And if she delivers this kind of unsolicited advice to the white middle class, to a member of it who has given her occupation as journalist to boot then what manner of abuse does she feel free to dish out to the black proletariat? How come she's lived so long? And why don't I punch her in the nose? I'll tell you why, because she's chosen to insult me when I'm flat on my back, dress pulled up, knickers down, vulnerable, helpless, undignified. I would publish her name to the four winds, and gladly, but the hell of it is, she turns out to be a good doctor, as far as the mechanics are concerned. Callous and insensitive, perhaps, but quick to spot a malfunction, a gift not to be sneezed at. And furthermore, a woman so straight-jacketed by self-righteousness, I doubt she'd ever understand why I want to crucify her. After all, her concern was only for what was best for the baby, and hadn't I virtually said I didn't want him? When she sees me, all pale and proud, on the ward after he's born, He, chuckling in a glass box like a very expensive orchid. She's as nice as pie. Well done, she says. She. Note how this consultant is female. I'm lying in at the embattled South London Hospital for Women, the last place I expected to be insulted. But there you go. Here, women treat women, and she's the only one of them who treated me like a piece of shit. I haven't been in hospital for 30 years, so I can't comment on the decline in the standards of the NHS. The floors aren't polished until they turn into lethal ice rinks anymore, which is no bad thing. The food has certainly improved, in comparison with the early 50s. The sheer wonder of the NHS remains that they will do the best they can for us, that we are not at the mercy of a free market economy, that the lovely nurses smile as if they meant it, and hug you when you are sad. Inevitably, this particular hospital is scheduled for the axe. No amount of special pleading on behalf of women whose religion specifies they be treated by doctors of the same sex seems likely to save it. It is due to close down next April, its various wards – it's a general hospital – distributed around other local hospitals. The staff seem scarcely able to believe that some miracle won't save the place. If the Minister of Health turns into a woman tomorrow, there might be a chance, especially if she then converted to Islam. It is a rather elegant red brick building, convenient for Clapham South Tube Station on the Northern Line. It overlooks green and pleasant Clapham Common. It is, obviously, very well-equipped. Only needs a coat or two of paint and a few vases of plastic flowers to be fit for... Who? The young woman in the bed next to me made a shrewd guess as to what would happen to the building once the NHS moved out. They'll sell it to bloody Booper, won't they? She opined. The midwife shows me how to put the baby to the nipple. Look deep into his eyes, she says. It helps with the bonding. Good grief! Aren't we allowed any choice in the matter, he and I? Can't I learn to love him for himself and vice versa, rather than trust to Mother Nature's psycho-physiological double bind? And what of his relationship with his father, who has no breasts? Besides, it's very difficult to look him in the eye. He fastens on the nipple with the furtive avidity of a secret tippler, hitting the British sherry glancing backwards to make sure nobody else gets there first. When he strikes oil, he instantly becomes comatose. Am I supposed to poke him into consciousness? Hey, baby, don't nod off. We're supposed to be bonding. More like bondage. Constrained affection. What resentment it will breed in time. It's all part of the mystification in which the process of childbirth is so richly shrouded. For he is doomed to love us, at least for a significant initial period, because we are his parents. The same goes for us. That is life. That's the hell of it. Somebody gave us an American publication called Giving Birth, a collection of photographs of mothers and fathers sharing the experience. Where's the lesbian couple? Discrimination. The parents look ecstatic, radiant, touchingly, comically startled, and so on. Lots of shots of little heads poking out of vulvas. Also, quotes from participants. I felt I had to be very focused. It was almost like meditation, says one mother. It is compiled by somebody called Mary Motley Collergis, another name on my post partural hit list. Isn't one allowed a year's justifiable homicide after the event? The photographs are all in black and white, please note. And indeed, colour film would have made souvenir snaps of the finale of my own accouchement look like stills from a Hammer horror film. While what was going on next door? An emergency caesarean? Well, that certainly wasn't like meditation. Not half it wasn't. This truly nauseating book is designed to mystify. It is about as kitsch as a fluffy blue bunny and as much to do with the realities of parturition as a fluffy blue bunny has to do with a real, live baby. OK, OK. So this notebook has submerged under a sea of baby shit. Mao Zedong called a pig a manure factory on four legs. A baby is much the same, except it remains stationary. Some people suggest you chuck boiled disposables on the compost heap. There are a few other suggestions for utilising the formidable quantities of orger produced by the average baby and heedlessly thrown away every day, to say nothing of the valuable amounts of methane they emit. At the end of War and Peace, Tolstoy has Natasha ankle-deep in baby shit. Impossible not to read something vindictive into that although he does make Pierre soil his hands too. Anyway, there's nothing wrong with baby shit. The TV news gobs out fresh horrors into the living room every evening. Insulted by the specific urgencies of the neonate, that appalling dichotomy, the one between our lives as we live them and the way that forces outside ourselves shape them for us, seems less desperate than usual. Under the circumstances... A mercy. From the archive, Trotsky in Mexico, Angela Carter on the maternity ward, was read by Adrian Bradley and me, Melissa Deans. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to When H.G. Wells Met Joseph Stalin, which is linked in the show notes. This has been audio long reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by Mae Robson. The features editor was Melissa Deans and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe and rate the show.